0: Hi, I'm Peter Haddock from Content with Media and welcome to this first edition of my brand new Podcast with Leadership series where I talk to leaders in the industry all about their business, what clients are wanting from them and how they see the industry progressing as it moves forward. Today is super exciting because I've got Chris Matthew who's the strategic manager for Flannery Plant Tire. They're one of the biggest companies in Earthworks right now and Chris has kindly joined me for the very first in this series on the back of interview that I did with him for Earthmovers magazine where he was talking about fuel and the focus that Flannery's got on fuel. In this edition which is nearly 40 minutes long Chris is actually talking about a whole range of different things that Flannery's doing, that Flannery's thinking about, what their customers want, skills, technology, and much, much more. This particular podcast is sponsored by Leica Geosystems, the connected site, surveying, and machine control equipment specialist. So let's go and find out what Chris had to say to me in this in-depth interview, the likes of which has never been done before in the industry. Thanks so much for listening. Chris is the man behind the scenes that you don't normally hear from so this is why this first edition is quite exciting because we're going to look at all the things that Flannery are doing behind the scenes not just as you can imagine in their world of Flannery plant hire but what they're doing with their customers and Chris has got a good background in that as well because Chris has got a background working for a tier one contractor and Chris What I really like about that background is you have brought and the conversations we've already had, which have been numerous, a lot of interesting information, wants and needs from that group. So, Chris, introduce yourself and say hi to everybody. And, And what I want you to start with is just a bit of an outline of Flannery and what you're trying to do. And the theme of this really is what customers want from me. And that's what I'd like us to concentrate on today. So please say hello, Chris.
1: Good morning, Peter. And yes. Hello, everybody. As you've very kindly introduced yeah, my name is Chris Matthew. I'm the strategic manager of Flannery Plant Hire. And as you've already said, Peter, I guess my role here is to try and take care of everything that's behind the scenes. So non-operational stuff. So that's everything from looking at how we utilize our plant, how we offer better value, better safety to our customers, how we communicate to them. My background is working for a tier one. So I, I bring a different perspective to potentially that client centric role. So I can try and focus and gear our business to making sure we're catering for what the customer needs, ultimately.
0: Yeah, and that's really important, Chris, because I think what we've seen in this industry is it has actually grown up a lot. And for you as Flannery in particular, the sites I've been on like the Lincoln Bypass recently with Galliford Try, a tier one contractor, you can see that actually you're being asked to do a lot more than you previously would have done of delivering plant onto site and things like that but that's a huge kind of behavioral change to the industry and to yourselves as well so tell me a little bit about that and the the behaviors of things that you've had to actually change within the business but also
1: outside of the business and the perceptional change that that's delivered as well I've been in the industry long enough to know that um, in the not too distant past, a lot of the plant hire industry was about putting a machine um, on the ground. And that machine stayed there for a period of time. And then ultimately, the plant hire company came and collected it. What's evolved over the last sort of five to eight years or so is a bit more of an understanding that plant hire takes more than that. We're now looking in terms of how we can better utilise the machine, like we can focus on the fuel, the financial utilisation. And then we've got the whole aspect with regards to the operator as well, um, ensuring that we're not only looking after that operator, giving them access to facilities whereby if they do need any support then um, we, we can provide that so they're not the forgotten man out on site anymore and then capturing that piece that you said about the behaviors it takes both sides so it's one thing for the plant hire company to become a little bit more sophisticated but the customers are becoming more sophisticated as well they're beginning to look beyond just the piece of metal and potentially the man on site and and they're looking at the data how best can they actually use that machine to get the most from it which is a step change which is really good to see
0: Well, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of that as well. And I think where we came from as an industry a few years ago was the fact that people just had this big gap between plant hire and the delivery of a site. So they were really engaged with like the concrete elements, the design, the BIM elements and things like that. But these guys that just turned up on site, dug a hole, uh, moved earth and then left were, were kind of exterior to the wider construction yeah. industry and i think what's really important is the way in which we've moved forward and um you mentioned things like data there and i think the data delivery is something i'm really passionate about because with the data if we do it right we can actually provide a lot more information to the customers as to how they can improve things but also if we don't get it right there's a big problem and a waste of time, isn't there? So tell me a little bit about that, Chris, because you you
1: mentioned that as an important thing first, really. We're surrounded by data. It doesn't matter whether it's on your mobile phone, whether it's the car that you drive, or increasingly it's in-home appliances. It's no different with the machines themselves. They provide a wealth of potential answers, but it's about tapping into that information. We've seen challenges whereby the machines have quite quickly caught up in terms of the data points that they're able to report on. What we're working with our customers is trying to try and home in on the actual bits of data that can give them some value. I've spoken a couple of times already about fuel in particular. Idle time is what I define as very low hanging fruit. It's one particular aspect we could really focus on to make an incremental change in how we use the machines. Idle time for me is a couple of things. So you've got the actual fuel burn that's happening at, at that point in time, which can be anything up to four gallons an hour. But then you've got the servicing side of things as well. So people plant interface is front and center of everything that we worry about. If you bear in mind, from my perspective, if I'm having to service a machine every 500 hours or so, if we're measuring or recording up to three, four, five hours of idle time per day, proportionately, I'm going to get to that service interval so much quicker, which means I'm going to send a man and a van out onto sites, and they're going to interact with the workspace, they're going to interact with that machine, not to mention the downtime of the machine itself. So when I say low hanging fruit, if we can look at particular metrics like idle time, really home in on it, drive that down to the minimum we possibly can. We're going to save on manpower. We're going to save on fuel. We're going to save on our environmental output in terms of emissions from the tailpipe, not to mention the journey to service it in the first place. So yeah, that low hanging fruit's really, really important. With regards to other data, we can look at how far we're traveling, how the machine operator is actually using the asset in the first place. Are they using it correctly? Are they in the correct mode? So there's loads of interesting things that we can get into, but what I don't want to do is bombard the client with lots and lots of information and then not have the resource to process it. If we and our partners and our other supply chain colleagues and from other plant high companies can hone in on certain bits of information, we can really drive an incremental change in the industry. And, and from my perspective, having been as a tier one and now working with Flannery, I think that's the way forward. Uh, pick and choose the bits of information that are important
0: i definitely think that's right chris i think you know what i see in the way in which the data and telematics has changed is that there is still a problem with that though at the moment and i think you know we have not got the ability to pull that information one very very swiftly and two therefore interpret it very swiftly and three pull it from an OEM fleet which like yours can be very mixed on site yeah you know and for me that really is something we've got to work harder on and I'd like to understand you know some of your thoughts on that really.
1: These are the challenges and frustrations that everyone in our sector has been faced with over the last sort of two three years whilst we've really ramped up um, the appetite for this data. So you've already said mixed fleets, OEMs. The reality of the UK sector in particular, we're reliant on the higher model, which is, it certainly works in our favor. The challenges with that are that I and my peer group, we buy from multiple manufacturers. Therefore, looking at the standard of information that we get, and let's keep focusing on idle time. Idle time can be defined as different things by different manufacturers idle time can be pulled from different sort of streams of code from the machines as well. So actually trying to compile all that information from the different OEMs, just myself, from Flannery's perspective, is a challenge. Let alone if you put yourself in the shoes of the tier ones, if they're pulling various streams of information from various hire providers, they're faced with a barrage of API feeds which don't necessarily correlate and furthermore, I would go so far as to say that if an OEM does an update, for example, on one particular stream of information, a challenge that we and the tier one customers have faced is that that can often knock out a data stream. So for five weeks, you might get a certain feed and it might work perfectly. And then on the sixth week, if a change has been made upstream, that affects the ability of the tier one to ultimately pull it into their dashboard or Power BI or whatever it is they're using. So. We are constantly working to standardize that, standardize the definition. What does idle time even mean? You know, different OEMs measure idle time from a different point, which is challenging. There's work to be done there to try and bring that all to one piece. And it is being done. I'm I'm not trying to sound defeatist. We are sitting down with all of the manufacturers in one room, all of the tier ones in one room to try and define it it's slow going it's hard work and that's really critical Chris because I think you know what I
0: am really really excited about is real time and what real time proper real time data does for us you know not the machine pinging every 15 20 seconds what that real time I almost call it like the construction site turning into the mine site that's being you know, run in real time. Because I know, for example, being on Lincoln Bypass, that that was a project where there was a specific bridge that was put in place, which therefore you could get, I suppose, an ADT traffic jam, for example, on um, if something wasn't going well. Now, in real time, if you can understand that, instead of getting the data a few minutes later or, or interpreted a few minutes later, the on-site tier one contractor manager And the construction manager is going to become so much more important with these things can actually or your manager for that can actually do something about it and go, bang, let's slow this down or let's move this. Let's take one of those trucks out of the fleet because, like you said, we're using too much carbon and fuel. Absolutely. So tell me about what you really want to see from that point of view, then, and how that
1: will change Flannery and how you deliver to customers. I think, Peter, you've described my utopia. Um, The reality is. That's exactly what we need. Real-time data with real-time GPS tracking. And to coin an OEM's brand, that will effectively give us that haul assist solution where we can actually see where all of our trucks are, what they're loaded with, how fast they're traveling, and you know, are they the correct weights under or overload? Now, that would be perfect. The reality of the situation is that we're coming off the back of AMP 1.2, which is effectively a ping at least every day to the point where we're at 2.0, which is something more regular. But depending on the OEM we're talking about, that ranges between 10 minutes and half an hour. Now, that's just simply not good enough to give you the level of data that you've just described, Peter. So we are faced with numerous challenges. And, and I don't want to talk on behalf of the technology providers, but the actual sheer volume of information that that creates, you know, if we are recording in real time, where does that sit? How do we transmit it who keeps it who accesses it there's lots of questions to be answered so i guess we're on a journey the other aspect that i want to bring up is you're only as good as the lowest common denominator so if you are on a site and you're running a fleet of 10 trucks if your 10th truck out of that fleet is slightly older for example so let's say for example it was procured in the year 2019 one year old the reality is it's only going to have technology on board that allows it to ping its data every 10 to 15 meters From that perspective, we we really need to understand the life cycle of plant. A provider such as ourselves, we're buying plant every two to three years. In other words, the average age of the fleet is every two to three years. So we need to understand that. If we are going to go on this journey of innovation, we need to understand that it's going to take a year or two just to get everything filtered through the fleet so that we're totally compliant with the next new sort of standard or capability. So working with customers to understand what those limitations are.
0: And I think that's a good point to end on that part of the conversation, Chris, because, you know, it is about um, getting people like your customers to understand that, look, this is a huge investment you've got to make if you're going to get a brand new fleet on site know and and that's a whole supply chain and how that all works for you to move that fleet on is big but some of the bigger things that i see coming in from a perspective of not just data but technology is actually how we do the fleet matching better and how we also look at how we've got machine control and dynamic training on machine control to deliver fuel efficiencies and stuff like that as well i always say and it's a bit of a mantra (laughs) of mine that actually the brain in the machine is the operator and if you've got a highly skilled operator who understands the machine who understands the technology and can actually make it work then you've got that ultimate machine. And but coming back to what you said before, if you've got an older piece of equipment or if you've got a machine operator that isn't as good as that really highly trained one then again we've got to be able to level that out technology like machine control advancements can do that but tell me a little bit about how you are bridging that sort of knowledge no, Absolutely. Gap. Well, th- this
1: is the really exciting thing that we're getting faced with now and the customers are really beginning to engage with it which is really encouraging perhaps more so than raw data so from my perspective looking at the way we're moving into this machine control era we're, we're digitalizing everything and it's happening at a pace. So starting at the beginning, we're looking at using simulators to upskill our apprentices. So they're getting a lot more stick time early in their careers with somebody who's capable, a plant trainer, for instance, who is able to sit on their shoulder and run them through how to use the machines. The simulators themselves have programs on board that enable them to go through a combination of trainings, whether it's skill training, whether it's familiarization with the machine control, the GPS, or indeed the fuel efficiency side of things, which is becoming increasingly prevalent. And we need to to talk about that in a little bit more detail. So from a machine control perspective, Peter, you made the point in terms of we're really fortunate, um, particularly in Flannery, but also in, in the industry that we've got some operators with a wealth of experience. They've been doing this for a very, very long time and that they're very skilled. Our challenge is as we bring in new operators or people who are being asked to do a new activity is getting them up to speed on time. We all know the pressures on site to complete the job as safely and as efficiently, effectively, as, as quickly as possible in, in reality. So if an operator hasn't done a task before, they're potentially given short shrift on site. So if we can get those operators, the tools that they can then perform that task safely and more effectively, then why ever would we not do it? So that's what machine control is enabling us to do now. It, it's effectively taking an inexperienced operator and creating a good result as a product, which is fantastic. The other advantage, particularly, and this is something that we've noticed with our apprentices, is that a lot of the um, digitalization, a lot of the tools that we're asking them to use really suits the Xbox generation. So they're really very good at adopting the hand controls, the screens understanding the designs that have been uploaded via the cloud to the machine they're really adopting that very very quickly so what we're finding is there's a a big upward curve in our productivity from our younger operators or our less experienced operators that we're bringing onto site that for me is really really good really really big but it links into the people plant interface side of things as well so if we can be more time effective with the guys on site, then we're going to be um, doing the action less frequently. So if it takes a single pass to make a grade rather than two or three, we're achieving the same end result with A, less fuel and B, less time on the machine, which will be cost effective and safer for the customer. So it's a no brainer. We have to take our industry down this machine control route, making sure we're upskilling the operators as we go. That's a good point, Chris. I think one of the
0: things that I have heard though, not just from yourself really, it's from other people I've been talking to in the industry, machine control is great and actually the operators do get the hang of it. I've met some really old yep. operators who have jumped on machine control and they're actually no, you're right. it, they have. you know and I've got a group of people that out there that are really passionate about sharing. One of the things that I have seen that is a problem is actually design for machine control because what's happening is that the tier 1 contractor level People are creating their wonderful 3D designs and all the rest of it, and then they're giving them and passing them down to the actual tier one, like yourself, plant hire a contractor, but they're not giving you the right (laughs) files, and then expecting you to be able to manipulate them and have a team of engineers doing them. And therefore, then as soon as you change a data point on something that's been provided by a tier one contractor, you then own those changes so that's your fault if it goes wrong <laughs> something has got to change with that. yeah no come you're, what, you're what right can we do? i'm going
1: to cut everyone a little bit of slack this is all very new at the moment and we're going to come across bottlenecks so whether it's a bottleneck in terms of training the operators in the first instance whether it's training the engineers who are creating the drawings whether it's the technology itself and it could be just the definitions, i.e. the language between two different systems. So we've got that commonality challenge. You know, If an engineer has worked in one sort of format, their employers are using a different format, then there's potential for a language barrier, a digital language barrier. And we've got the same sort of potential barrier um, between the machines, the operators and the engineers. So it's a learning curve. But this is behaviours. This is understanding that this is something to be talked about that hasn't been talked about before. So this is potentially a new discussion. It's a new meeting. It's a new training course that we need to sit side by side with the engineers so that we learn this common language. And with, without using too fluffy words, you know, we might need to become bilingual. There might be more than one system that's prevalent on site. So providers such as ourselves need to train in one or two different ways. And it's the same for the engineers. But we need to make sure we don't create an us and them. That that absolutely can't happen, otherwise that will become a barrier to entry from the outset. Just to reiterate my last point, I do view machine control as our next logical step in the technology cycle. So we have to adopt it. And therefore, we have to embrace the uh, challenges that are gonna come up along the way.
0: And that's a good point, Chris, you know, and and fair play to yourself. for giving people the space, you know, I'm talking about something that is obviously going to be needed. And I think it comes again to this word we keep using, this behavioral change word. And I think what I see as well, I wanna come back to it slightly because what I do see with machine control and technology in particular, is actually it's supporting safer operation on site yeah and i think that's one of the next things i'd like us to move on to really because safety is absolutely number one i don't care how productive you are i don't care how efficient you are i don't care what you do unless you are working safely you do not deserve to be on site you know and the features and technology features that can be brought in and I just saw a flashing, vibrating thing at Con Expo with, with Leica Geosystems that's linked directly to their screen, their machine control screen, because also I feel that we're getting a sense of clutter and congestion in the cab. So we've got to have more advances into one screen or, or audible, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what are the safety things that one, you're embracing, and two, you're looking oh, for. Absolutely.
1: I, I want to reiterate your point as well, Peter. None of this is worthwhile if we can't send our guys home safe at the end of the night. Um, And I not only take responsibility for our guys, but it's the people who work in and around the machines. I'm quite proud of the position that Flannery has created with regards to the minimum standard of plant that we put out on site. We were one of the pioneers with 360 degree cameras. Um, We've continued to invest in the fleet so that we've got the highest minimum standard of equipment out in the park today. And that position is reiterated by the fact that my MD, Patrick, sits on the board of uh, Raising the Bar for Highways England. He actually chairs that plant standards group so that we are there driving the industry forward. And then several of us sit on other plant standards groups across all the other tier ones. So you've mentioned some of the specific aspects to the machines themselves. I also share the concern that you've got with regards to cluttering the operator's environment, the operator's working environment. We have a scenario at the moment whereby we have up to five screens in an operator's cab as standard. Now, that's an awful lot of things to distract them away from looking out the window and seeing what their working environment is with their own eyes. So one of the solutions to this is when we get these technical standards approved and recognized, it's the OEMs adopting them and putting them in as factory fit. And the challenge is compounded by the fact that when we do invest in a new safety system, it's typically an aftermarket fit, which therefore means that an engineer comes and fits an extra device to our machines um, which typically doesn't integrate with what was already there so you've already hit the nail on the head with your 360 degree cameras can we integrate the other audible alarms the other quick hitch systems that we employ at flannery so it's all on one system so we've got a step change to make there I'm very proud of where we've come from. We've done a lot of trials. We've worked with a lot of tier one customers in terms of what they need to have on the machines. We've adopted those and we've standardized it. So we've got a high baseline. Now the question is, right, we need the OEMs to come in and adopt this as they've done with 360 degree cameras. That's now a factory fit sort of safety device, which is really, really good. You ask me a question in terms of what we're doing specifically. There are a multitude of things. The big aspect that we're looking at is the specific people plant interface with regards to the working zone. So we have the camera system, which is the the, the, uh, the bird's eye camera system. We have the audible alarm systems with the RFID tag, which can be attached to a helmet or a piece of PPE. Our challenge, particularly in the urban environments, is we don't only view the risk from um, an operative's point of view if, if somebody comes into the workspace, but what happens if a member of the public comes in and the RFID tagging system therefore has its limitations so there are increasingly systems that recognize the human form or indeed another object we're investigating those thoroughly to make sure that we're taking the next technical advancement on my challenge with any safety system whether it be a person detection system or an automatic braking system or whatever is how does it work does it fail to safe and that's my real big bugbear because what i don't want the operators to do is rely on any safety system and allow that to take the place of looking it's the old parking sensor analogy which i i use quite a lot peter which is if you're used to reversing sensors on your car and suddenly you drive a different vehicle the number of people who back into their wall or garage on that day is uh, Is quite high (laughs) i can take that from a colleague of mine who works in the the car repair business so what again using that i I don't want operators to rely on these systems and to stop looking out the window it's to improve their ability to spot somebody
0: you're giving people that opportunity to bring these sort of technologies to yourself um, i'm assuming and and also to actually test bed them and I think, you know, what I'd say to people like yourself is it's actually being in that privileged position as a sort of tier one contractor plant hirer, you know, you do have the ability to support the rest of the industry, Chris, you know, in testing these things and in proving that these systems, these actually work and they should be therefore accredited or given access to by other people and, and by you fitting these machines. Uh, With these systems, as you go to the secondary used market, you're already putting that kind of enabled plant into that sector as well for the smaller yeah absolutely
1: and we all have a responsibility particularly in the uk which seems to drive safety behavior i'm quite proud of the uk's position that our standard of plant is much higher than elsewhere in the world with regards to opening up that testbed situation yes flannery is one of the big places to go to but i would argue that um the tier one customers have as much of an impact on that as well which is really good so What I've noticed with a number of our tier one clients is they've actually empowered us, the supply chain, to lead their plant standards groups. So whether it be Highways England, which is an example I've already given, or your your Yuskanskas, Costains, just to name a few. We actually lead their PPI groups where we are actively encouraged to bring innovation to them, which is something that we want to try on one of their sites in a safe, controlled area. And it's critiqued, it's critiqued by our peers, it's critiqued by works managers. People are actually on the ground using the machines um, to say what the limitations might be. Is it something that we wanna try? Is it something that we want to roll out? Um, nationally i think that's a really progressive way of getting innovation to the fore there's a number of things particularly with balfabeti that we've been able to to roll out and it's the, the speed that we've been able to get these things onto the plant has been exceptional you know we, we've not managed to get things out as fast before which is really really good um, and that in itself is raising our profile so we're we're getting contacted almost daily with various companies from around the world who want to try something they're doing something in their home nations and they want to propose it over in the uk and i encourage that to Continue. Not everything works on every machine and not everything works in every environment. And I'm very keen to get a high standard level of, of plant. But that doesn't mean we don't want to trial it, you know, and, and customers have the prerogative to turn around to us and say, well, no, this is something that's really important to us. And we want it on either this job, this project, this series of projects, or indeed company wide. And you know what? that tends to then filter through the other companies. You mentioned something, Peter, around how our used plant sales are of a really, really high standard. I mean, it's an interesting conversation I've had with some European colleagues where we've sold some plant recently, where they've said that our used plant, which might be two years old, is often of a higher standard than their new fleet. So I think that's a ringing endorsement of what the UK is achieving. We are pushing that bar. We're raising that bar constantly. And and long may that continue.
0: I think raising the bar, you just said, is another bit of a passion (laughs) of mine, Chris, as well, because I've done a lot of work with Mark Lawton from Scanska on raising the bar. He is just so enthusiastic about technology. It's unbelievable. And I think when you've got somebody like Mark and you're working with that team and Mark and the other tier ones that you're talking about that are even challenging themselves to get you guys to bring in new technologies, like for example, the next phase of that sort of smart compaction um, and other safety related technologies, then you've actually got a collaborative workspace within the industry that fundamentally hasn't been there before. I know I've spent <laughs> 14 years reporting on this industry. That collaboration is a breath of fresh air to everybody, I think.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. From my perspective, it is absolutely critical that we retain champions of safety. Like you said, you've got Mark Button, you've got other individuals who shall remain nameless for the time being, but they are really driving this industry further forward. And I'm really pleased that we're able to work with them. I think when you put all of those minds in a room, whilst it's very noisy and very opinionated, what it is, is it's driving that behaviour change. And without it, we're just going to end up producing the same results that we do year after year. The big challenge for companies such as us, for the big tier ones, is to constantly reinvent themselves. Press the pause button and look at what they are doing well. What incidents have we had? What have we learned? And how can we make things better? And Peter, as you've said, I think we're beginning to do that more and more frequently. And we've got the right people in place to to keep driving that forward. And, you know, if we keep having those ideas, we're going to keep innovating, which is which is key.
0: And I think that brings us to what I'd like to sort of close with, Chris, really, if that's OK. And that is the whole life cycle costing, really, for this industry and the challenges that we've got. I mean, I went to Con Expo and we're supposed to meet up with you there, but we we're both very busy. But on the stand, the Volvo stand that wasn't manned, but that had actually got a solar paneled, hired unit that you can actually take onto site and so that multi-fuel proposition the the hydrogen fuel cells electricity the low carbon the fact that we've got machine control reducing carbon emissions this is the big big issue and um, particularly as we get shut down of areas like in major cities for low carbon we've still got to deliver
1: projects and how are we gonna be tackling that and what's flannery looking at i think you're right to address it i think this is the elephant in the room but in a positive sense you know we we all have a huge responsibility with the environment and the challenges that are being faced at the moment globally in terms of how can we reduce our reliance on fossil fuels how can we produce our projects which must be produced in the most carbon efficient way without damaging the environment so you're right this, this is our challenge you mentioned with regards to multi-fuels. So we have an electrification process going on. That's undeniable. You, you look at any car park at the moment within the tier ones, you look at my own car fleet, You know we're moving to a hybrid slash fully electric infrastructure. That's good, but we have to ensure that what the decisions that we're making now, we don't regret in the future. I've been very passionate with my role with the supply chain school in driving best behavior from the direct carbon output of the business, that's Flannery, but also our indirect um, carbon output, which is the emissions from the machines. It is obvious that the newer, more modern machines are burning less fuel. Um, and in doing so, they're emitting less particulates and nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, which is a good thing. What we mustn't lose sight on is as a result of a conversation I've had with a number of people through the Carbon Trust and the City of London, is that the plant itself has a, has a huge amount of embodied carbon built up into it. And anything with a battery currently is, is very resource intensive to make. It's resource intensive to retain. It deteriorates over the course of time. And then ultimately, what do we do with it at the end of its life? Um, all of those things need to be added up. That's not me sounding as though I'm negative towards electric. But what we must do is not create a problem that we can't solve down the line. I think in reality, and and I can only talk for today rather than five, 10, 15 years time, I think we're looking at a period of time where we need to machine match very, very carefully. So, is that an electric mini digger? Is it a hydrogen 13 tonner? Is it is it a hybrid machinery which is recapturing some of its lost energy from from the slew motor? Is it clean diesel? Some of the OEMs are very passionate that actually they can make the diesel engine more efficient. You look at some of the technology from other sectors, like the automotive sector, particularly motor racing. You know they've made the internal combustion engine up to 50% thermally efficient. Now our uh, Big machines are not that yet. So there's a long way to go with regards to the internal combustion engine. The other challenge that we've got is to get the same breakout force from a large machine, a 30, 40, 50 ton machine. We're going to need batteries the size of houses. Now, battery technology is improving exponentially. We're going to get there. I have no doubt that we're going to get there. So that we're going to get to a point where we can actually fit the battery onto a machine and put it to work. But then our challenge is, and particularly in the UK with HS2 coming and large infrastructure jobs, Highways England jobs, we work typically in a linear fashion. So that means we've got machines spread out over 20, 30, 40 miles. And in HS2's case, meant up to 100 miles worth of works. So how do we get power to them? At the moment, what we do is we fill bowsers up, and we send them down the line and, we, and we, we fill the machines up either daily or bi-daily. Do we need to have another mechanism for electricity? Do we need a, a third mechanism for hydrogen and maybe any other sort of fuel source? What we need to do is make sure that we're innovating, we're pushing technology on, but we're not creating a new problem in terms of having multiple fuels, multiple deliveries, multiple storage depots, um, which could in turn inversely um, affect our carbon output. But there's lots of exciting things. You know, I don't wanna sound like I'm putting a downer on it, the the improvements that we've made from stage three B to four to five have been fantastic. You know, forget the brochures, forget the, the technical specifications. Flannery have done a lot of case studies and we've noticed Fuel improvements from 3A to 3B of up to 40% fuel savings. From 3B up to stage 5, we're measuring slightly less, sort of 15 to 20% fuel savings, which is a fantastic improvement. I know you're very familiar with the machine, the D6XE from CAT, using its constant drive electric tracks. Now, the obvious saving is the 20% of fuel, which is fantastic. That means we're refueling the machine 20% less often. So we've got a PPI saving, but we've also got the noise. If we've got a constant drive engine, Um, without really, really high revs, those working in the vicinity of the machine aren't subjected to quite the same number of decibels. So we've got that sort of environmental saving as well. So I see technology as being the savior, the step in the right direction for the environment. But i see a mix of technologies different fuels in different environments making sure that we don't over innovate or grab an innovation because it's new and shiny and force it into a scenario where it doesn't fit
0: yeah and i totally agree with you on that i think from my perspective chris that carbon is the issue that is addressed in what i call the one percents so can we wait a one percent improvement in training Can we make a 1% improvement in machine control, in models, in the engineering, in the other bits? And all of those 1% add up with a carbon mission, as it were, to deliver things. Can we talk to our Bowser filling companies and get sites closer to our sites so that they're not traveling? Can we actually have some form of electric transportation of your guys uh, in your fleet to the site? You know, There's all sorts of things beyond the machine which you know, we've got to talk about. Listen, Chris, I've taken up a lot of your time. I think there's an enormous <laughs> piece of work there that you, you guys are doing. We want to be promoting this and looking at the case studies and things like that in the future when we get back to normal. But I think just for you talking about all these different elements, it's mind-blowing the amounts of things that, that Flannery and the industry are already working on. I think we've just got to get that passion that drive and that involvement with everybody from the very very new people into the industry right the way through to those that are going to be retiring in a few years time but the one thing i'd like to leave everybody with is this is a cracking industry folks we've got to talk more about it we are leading the way with technology the playstation generation are loving us so we've got this opportunity to attract more people into this industry and that's what we need because guess what a lot of your operators are probably over 50 going to be retiring soon we've got huge projects like HS2 which they're going to be way retired before some of some of your operators before it finishes and we've got the ultimate opportunity to say to people this is a really exciting industry where People like yourself are at the cutting edge of
1: change, and we're driving that change through the wider yeah. construction environment. Valid point, and, and I'd like to add my weight behind that. You know, with companies such as Flannery and, and our peer group as well, there are tremendous opportunities to get involved in this industry. The apprenticeship that we run, the plant apprenticeship, whether it's the uh, those guys or the mechanics apprenticeship, or indeed the office, the white collar workers. I really, really want to encourage kids, school leavers, the former military personnel engage with us because we've got so many vacancies at the moment with regards to getting you guys through it's a good industry there's good fair money to be made so there's a lot of opportunity so yeah reach out to us the website is always a good place to land and any of the local skills colleges around the jobs that we support please get in touch one way or the other Um, find us on linkedin facebook etc
0: right chris i'm just going to say a massive thank you for talking to me today good luck with everything We will be following the Flannery story, very much so. I'm going to be getting on to see that D6XE when everything comes back around again. And we're also really going to be following and looking at how all of these different things are working and talking to the people that matter. And Chris, fantastic to start (laughs) my first series of leadership interviews for Earth Movers magazine with an interview full of information, full of excitement, and positivity for the future. Great stuff, Peter, and good luck with the rest of the interviews. Well, wow, that was Chris Matthew from Flannery Plant Hire, folks, and didn't he have so much to talk to us about? What a great way to launch this first series. There's so much to think about in what Chris is doing and what Flannery is doing as a business we're going to see some huge changes as we move forward. And it's such an exciting time to be involved in the earthworks and general construction sectors right now. So what I want to do is say a big thank you to Chris for spending so much time with me and telling me all about what Flannery is doing. And I want to also say thanks again to Leica Geosystems for sponsoring this podcast. And if you'd like to understand more on how to go about choosing the right construction technologies, visit... ConstructTech.com dot com and read one of their thought pieces from their expert Hoppy. So it's a massive thank you for me for listening, folks. I am so excited about this new series. We've got some incredible people that are gonna be on it. I'd really love to have your feedback on what Chris has said here, and also the types of things that you want me to be asking leaders in the future. With five of these already in the bag, we're gonna have some serious thinking to do in the coming months, as more and more leaders give us their opinions on the industry, what they're doing, and how we're going to move this forward together. Once again, thanks so much for listening, and keep your eyes peeled for the next edition coming very, very soon. Until the next time, folks, bye!